Hi, this is Danny Catch, part of the Working Class Heroes team. This week's episode is special for a couple reasons. First, because it's the second part of our investigative series on Prakash Sherman, locked up without a fair trial since he was 16. This is exactly the kind of reporting that Working Class Heroes was created for. But the other reason this is a special episode is that it's our 20th since we've joined New York's legendary community radio station, WBAI, this spring. Putting on 20 episodes may not be much of an accomplishment for programs that are blessed with a lot of resources. We've gotten this far through all voluntary labor and out-of-pocket costs. It's been an amazing accomplishment, but it's not sustainable without help. That's why we've launched our first fundraiser on GoFundMe. If we can raise $6,000, we'll be able to both pay off our past expenses and set ourselves up to grow in the coming year. We've already raised over half our goal and it's been amazing. Not just the money, which we definitely need, but the support. So we know the times are tough and uncertain, but if you're able to make a donation to help us reach our goal, go to gofundme.com backslash F backslash WCH radio. Or just go to GoFundMe and search for Working Class Heroes Radio. And if you can't make a donation, we totally get it. And you can still support us by subscribing to our podcast, giving us five stars on iTunes if that's where you get your podcast, and just generally spreading the word about what we're doing. Thank you, and as always, solidarity. everybody. My name is Khadija and I'll be your host tonight. Today's episode will be part two of the Prakash Churman story, Can't Be a Victim to the System. Prakash is a 21-year-old currently incarcerated at Rikers Island Correctional Facility. If you missed the first part of this two-part series, you'll be able to listen to it via major podcast platforms by searching for Working Class Heroes. But first, we'll go to Danny and Mel for this week's headlines. Before we get started, we at Working Class Heroes want to recognize that we in New York City live on land that was stolen from and still rightfully belongs to the Lenape people. We stand in solidarity with the Lenape and all indigenous peoples in their struggles for liberation. Thanks, Mel. On Tuesday, just over one week before presidential elections and after an accelerated Senate confirmation hearing, Amy Coney Barrett, was sworn in as the ninth Supreme Court Justice, establishing a 6-3 Republican majority. Among many other terrible parts of her record, most immediately, Barrett has refused to state that she will recuse herself in any voting-related case after next week's vote, despite the fact that Trump has stated she was selected precisely to adjudicate such issues. But this election is just the latest and what might be one of the most far-reaching parts of Trump's legacy. As a recent Pew report indicates, Thus far, Trump has selected over 200 justices, almost a quarter of all active federal judges in the U.S., and the largest amount of appeals-level justices than anyone since President Carter. And a recent Center for American Progress report also indicates how, outside of the partisan background of the judiciary, almost all federal judges have backgrounds as prosecutors or private firm lawyers, and no sitting judge spent the majority of their career with the nonprofit civil rights organization. While the Supreme Court nomination has generated calls to rethink the role of an undemocratic judiciary and the structure of the government here, outside the United States, protesters continue to push for fundamental changes to their governments as well. 
Last Sunday, Chileans overwhelmingly voted in favor of rewriting their constitution that was previously imposed in 1980 by the U.S.-supported Pinochet dictatorship, sparked most recently by the youth-led Metro Fair hike protests from last year. The movement continued to grow, with protesters making the connection between those hikes and the neoliberal economic model imposed on Chileans for the last 30 years. And in Thailand. Tens of thousands of pro-democracy protesters have faced water cannons and riot police during demonstrations this week, calling on the resignation of the prime minister, who was the head of the military coup there in 2014. Protesters are calling for amendments to their constitution, a reduction in their king's power, a new election, and an end to activist crackdowns. Meanwhile, back in the U.S., protests have been ongoing in Philadelphia since Monday when police murdered Walter Wallace Jr. Who was armed only with a knife and was at least 10 feet away from police? The police came after his family had called for an ambulance to take Wallace to a hospital for a mental health episode. Philadelphia police have violently confronted protesters as well as passersby. On Tuesday, police stopped a family in a car trying to drive away from the protests, threw the mother out of the car, beat her and arrested her, and then grabbed her toddler from the back seat. The local police union later posted a picture of an officer holding that baby, with a caption that falsely claimed, "Quote: This child was lost during the violent riots in Philadelphia, wandering around barefoot in an area that was experiencing complete lawlessness." On Wednesday, Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden angered many Philadelphia activists when he answered a reporter's question about anger over the shooting of another unarmed black man by saying. There is no excuse whatsoever for the looting and the violence. None whatsoever. Meanwhile, in Louisville, two grand jurors have come forward to say that Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron never gave them the option to consider murder or manslaughter charges against the police officers who killed Breonna Taylor on March 13th, a murder that became a rallying cry for the Black Lives Matter protests this summer. In other news regarding violent law enforcement. Border Patrol agents shot and killed two people last Friday. An unarmed man in Laredo, Texas, who was allegedly driving a car with undocumented immigrants, and 30-year-old David Angel Villalobos killed while trying to enter the U.S. in San Ysidro, California. According to the Southern Border Communities Coalition, at least 114 people have died since 2011 as a result of encounters with border agents. And in New York City. A federal monitor has found that as COVID raged inside city jails this spring, corrections officers used force against inmates at the highest rate in five years, with 719 violent incidents in March alone. In COVID news, almost one in four MTA workers said they had contracted the virus, according to a survey of 650 Transport Workers Union Local 100 members. Previously, Governor Cuomo. Said that only about 14% of transit workers tested positive for antibodies. And last Thursday, a federal monitor revealed that three times as many public housing residents are being exposed to lead poisoning than previously thought. NYCHA had claimed there were 3,000 apartments with young children that likely contain lead paint. However, it turns out that that number is actually roughly 9,000. Since the start of lockdowns across the world due to the coronavirus. Violence against women has increased significantly on a global level. 
In Latin America, feminist protesters united under the Ni Una Menos movement that started in Argentina in 2015 have engaged in numerous actions to combat this violence. In Mexico, rising numbers of femicides throughout the last decade has now increased to record numbers, as have emergency calls regarding violence against women. In the beginning of September, activists took over the National Human Rights Commission's building, renaming it the Cuba Occupation Shelter House, sparking increased protests against gendered violence there and around the country. And finally, in Puerto Rico, femicides have increased by 83% during the quarantine compared to this time last year, sparking increased protests on the island as well. This Monday, Governor Wanda Vazquez issued an executive order creating explicit government protocols to address violence against women. Now, although various groups and activists have called the governor to declare a state of emergency about gender violence, the executive order establishes a set of responsibilities for various government agencies coordinated by a new commission. Activists are demanding that this executive order become law during the next legislative session. And that's it for headlines. We'll be right back with Khadija and Lupita after a quick break. Cause you've been down on me for too long And for too long I just put you on Now I'm tired of lying And I'm sick of trying Cause I'm losing who I really am And I'm not choosing to be like them Dislike for me, you express. I won't care if you're right or you're wrong. I won't care, cause you see, I'll be gone. Maybe today, yeah, I'll slip away. That was I'll Slip Away by Sixto Rodriguez. You'll be listening to Working Class Heroes Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM and also streaming on WBAI.org. Now, on to part two of the Prakash Churman story. We'll go now to our correspondent, Julian, who will be covering his story. On our last show, we began Prakash Churman's story. We spoke about his background, how he ended up behind bars at the age of 15, charged with the murder of his best friend, and what role the Queen's District Attorney has played in all this drama. Prakash has been incarcerated since 2014. Six years later, he's still fighting to prove his innocence. This very moment, Prakash is trapped in the Rikers Island jail complex, listening to this show on his headphones. He's been through a lot since his guilty verdict was overturned last year, but he remains steadfast about his innocence. He faces a retrial with the same judge who railroaded him last time. His lawyers have dropped his case, and despite all this, the Queen's District Attorney still offered him a plea deal for time served, letting him go free in the next year. But he refuses to take any deal that accuses him of killing 21-year-old Taquan Clark. In part two of his story, we pick up where we left off. 
The year is 2014. 15-year-old Prakash sits in jail after he confessed to two Queens homicide detectives who he says pressured and manipulated him, going as far as using his own mother against him into giving a forced confession. To be fair to Prakash's mother, like so many people, she had never dealt with anything like this before. And though she did help the cops pressure her son into a forced confession, she told me that she wasn't aware of the consequences, given the language barrier between her and the detectives. Because she was at the precinct that morning instead of her job, like many immigrant working people, she was concerned her boss would discipline her or lay her off. She regrets what she did and believes that the detectives were not doing their jobs correctly. She continues to help Prakash, but she can only do so much from the outside. At 15 years old, most teenagers are just beginning to figure out what career to pursue, what colleges to attend, and where to go after they've graduated. Decisions that will affect very deeply the course of their future and their identity. Prakash had to confront all this while incarcerated, almost completely alone. But as time went on, he became friends with other incarcerated youth on Rikers Island and met people who to this day still provide him with support and friendship despite the isolation that incarceration imposes on prisoners. I spoke with the person Prakash trusts the most about his case. Uh, my name is Jacob Cohen. I'm a, a musician. I play the cello. And uh, for four years, I was running a music program in Rikers Island for the um, for the adolescents and young adults age 16 to 21. I would bring my cello into the jail and go from uh, housing unit to housing unit, just visiting the kids and playing music for them and with them and uh, doing art with them and stuff like that and just talking to them. So I'm, I met like thousands of them and had a really, really good relationship with, uh, with the majority of the kids in the jail. And um, I became really close with one of Prakash's um, best friends in the jail. They were just really close and had been locked up together, I think for like two years or something like that. You know, I knew about Prakash's situation because you, everybody kind of has like horrible uh, situations in there, but Prakash was kind of like a particularly sad case because he said he was innocent, you know, locked up for a crime that uh, occurred when he was 15 years old and he had basically no support. You know, he had an 18B lawyer who he said was not really helping him, didn't believe that he was innocent and just, you know, wasn't really representing him. So he was like, you know, just inside there and like kind of pitifully and hopelessly trying to like tell people that he, you know, wasn't involved in this crime. So his friend, you know, one day basically told me like, you know, it's really sad, like Prakash, like I really, after all these years, like he never once told me that he, you know, he was involved in the crime. Like he really, his friend told me that he really believed he was innocent. And like, you know, that even with as close as they were, like he never admitted to participating. He always said that he didn't, you know. Prakash insists that he was elsewhere when the home invasion occurred, but he has struggled to secure evidence or have someone testify in support of his alibi. Left to his own devices, he realized he had to strengthen his defense build up a team who can help him do things on the outside. I just kind of like knew him for months and eventually like uh, he kind of asked me directly to help him organize a uh, Kickstarter to try to raise funds so he could hire a lawyer. Jacob was taking a risk helping Prakash, a risk that would eventually cost him his job, but it worked out. Prakash's case was picked up by two principled civil rights lawyers, 
Ron Kuby, and Rhea Trevetti, who took his case for free. But it wouldn't be enough to win the case because, as Prakash explained, uh, In my trial, my first trial, my, um, my judge, Kenneth C. Holder, in uh, Queen Supreme Court, criminal term, he denied me from presenting an expert witness on the subject of juvenile false confessions. And basically the juror, I mean, the expert witness will, would have came in and testified and uh, basically gave insight, knowledge, and basically educate the jurors on juvenile false confessions. But the reason why I say juvenile is because this expert studies and does research specifically involving juveniles and false confessions. So, um... It was very, the, the report of her testimony was very detailed and very, very relevant to this particular case. So, the judge had no reason to deny me, but you know, he just did it, just because he has authority. And because he knows, had he had granted that, that expert to come testify on my behalf, the outcome of the case would have been different. He knows that. But you know, I'm back down here now, awaiting a new trial in front of the same judge. So, judge, how did that judge treat you in that case? Man, he you... told me when I went in front of him to get sentenced. He told me, man, had I been 16 and older, he would have made sure I'd never saw daylight again. That's exactly what he told me. So that right there shows a lot. Jacob said something similar about Judge Holder. I was gonna say, and the judge is also. Uh pretty uh, biased in the in the trial you know like even before the trial started the judge the judge said you know I've looked at the evidence it's convincing like you're going to be found guilty we highly recommend you take the deal you know and Prakash was just like I'm not taking the deal right the deal the was like instead of nine to life you do, you get seven to life I think that yeah was- but at that time we didn't know whether he was going to get nine to life you know like it could have been they were saying that it, there was a chance that it could have been 15 to life. Um, but but the the law is all a little murky, you know. It's like, because he was only 15, you know, so it's like, but there's a murder charge. So it's like, I don't know, there's a lot of, like, you know, nuanced laws about, like, what they can or can't sentence him to. But, the, yeah, the offer was seven to life. Right. So he, he was, like, not going to take that. His attorneys lost the case. Prakash was sentenced to nine years to life by Judge Holder. But they didn't give up. In 2019, a year after he was found guilty, his attorneys appealed the conviction to the state appellate court. On June 24th of last year, the appellate court overturned Judge Holder's decision, arguing Judge Holder incorrectly prohibited Prakash from presenting his expert testimony, which, as the court held, would have included evidence discussing characteristics that heightened his vulnerability to manipulation educating the jury on the interrogation conducted by the detectives, discussed techniques that were utilized and the improper participation of the defendant's mother during the interview. Why would Judge Holder handle Prakash's case the way he did? It's worth taking a look at the judge himself. Judge Kenneth Chadwick Holder spent 20 years as a former prosecutor in the Queens District Attorney's Office from 1985 to 2005. He's been a judge in New York since 2006, mainly focused in Queens. Now this raises an important question. 
Has Holder's background working for the prosecution made him less than fair and impartial as a criminal court judge? Well, during his career, according to our research, Judge Holder has had 52 criminal convictions appealed, of which 27 of them were modified, reversed, or sent back to the court. Looking over these 27 cases, there are some common things you'll find. Judge Holder has a problem allowing prosecutors to charge a defendant twice for the same thing. So for example, assault in the first degree and in the second degree. He's been reversed due to inappropriately allowing certain evidence, or as in Prakash's case, not allowing evidence that should have been seen by the jury. He's had sentences reduced due to being too excessive. And he's also failed to allow defense attorneys to challenge the selection of a juror and for failing to provide proper juror instructions. So it's a bunch of different things, but his decisions have one thing in common, a consistent bias towards the prosecution at the expense of poor defendants of color like Prakash Churaman. Having won his appeal, Prakash now awaits a new trial. In total, he's been waiting for over six years in jail or prison, technically innocent in the eyes of the law, and innocent by his own convictions. Six years spent between jail and prison will have their consequences. First and foremost, you know, anyone that's been locked up for six years, you know, from the age of 15, uh, no doubt about it, I would say, you know, serious amount of PTSD. I was suffering uh, from this even prior to my arrest, um, I suffered from depression and anxiety. Sent to a psych hospital. I was there for like two months. I got evaluated, and they also basically diagnosed me with schizoaffective, which is basically like someone that um, hallucinates, that hears or sees things, but also has mood disorder, basically. Well, I take Wellbutrin in the morning. Two, I take two pills in the morning. And then nighttime, I take the Alonzapine which is Iprexa, and um, Wellbutrin, and Benadryl. Throughout all these years, I mean, I, I can't really sit here and tell you uh, a person that's been locked up for so long, I, I wouldn't even believe you. I, was, I would say that's a bold-faced lie, to, to, to sit here and say, oh, someone's been locked up for so long and hasn't developed any type of PTSD. He told me he's attempted suicide twice. And what he speaks about here is an all too common thing among those incarcerated. He was quiet, you know, he kind of keep to himself. He was real, just like, you know, he was, I don't know, man. He had a sad look in his eye. He was kind of like a little shut down. Um, yeah, but he had this good friend that he was always living next, he was always living with. So they were kind of had like a little unit where they would support each other in the jail. Because, you know, he's Guyanese, he, and he's not affiliated with any with any gang, so he was kind of, you know, just sort of like a... They were kind of just, like, surviving in there, you know, trying <laughs> trying to live amongst um, all this crazy, like, gang violence and all these gang beefs and all this, you know, madness that was going on around them and trying their best to just, you know, just fight their fight for his, his innocence, you know? And he was always talking about it, how he... <laughs> how he's innocent, you know, he's there for a crime he didn't do. And, um, and you know, he always had this kind of like air about him in the jail where he was it's just like a sad case, you know, it's like, it's just, a, you know, like another, another kid that's getting lost in the system completely. 
Um, so that was kind of like the vibe, you know. But once we started have, getting some momentum, you know, he started to feel like he had some support. He kind of transformed a little bit. He became much more confident in himself and, uh, you know, began to tell his story to people. And he's like, you know, I want to get my story out there because it's, it's crazy what's happening to me, you know. Little by little, calling people here and there, Prakash has pulled together a small support team around him. Jacob was his first connection, and with Jacob's help... And ever since then, we've been in contact, man. So now, we recently got in um, in touch with an organization called IWALK. I believe it stands for Incarcerated Working Organizing Committee. It's IWALK NYC. That's the name of the organization. Anyways, there's a guy that works for them. His name is Jorgen, and um, he is a good guy, man. He's a good guy, man. He's helped me, man. He's, he's created a GoFundMe for me right now. He's created a, a petition on change.org. Um, I also have three social media uh, pages, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You have one minute left. I'm trying. I mean, they're trying to help me as well. So this organization is very um, helpful, man, especially for those incarcerated. Prakash's support team is still small. He's confronting a whole system that is dead set against him. One thing that you learn about these types of struggles of people fighting for their innocence from behind bars is that moments of victory are few, and they are usually followed with long periods of little to no progress. There are no silver linings in prison, where the incarcerated are smuggled under gray clouds. We'll be right back after a short musical break. You're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM. My name is Julian, and we're talking about Prakash Churman and his fight to prove his innocence and secure his freedom. Let's get back to our segment. In part one of this story, I mentioned that Prakash had a court date on October 21st that would likely be postponed for another future date. And that's what happened. But something else happened that day. Judge Holder, the prosecutor, and Prakash's attorneys got on a conference call together where Judge Holder allowed his attorney's request to be released from the case. Prakash didn't find out until a few days later because all of this happened without his participation. It wasn't the first time, and it seems like normal practice now where the court does little to nothing for defendants so that they can participate in the process of their own trials. Either way, Prakash doesn't have an attorney to help him prove his innocence. He'll likely be assigned an overworked, under-resourced, and underpaid public defender who can't really be the type of fighter he needs in his corner right now. But thanks to his small support group, Prakash was able to connect with somebody who he had heard of, someone that might be able to help him in his case. I'm private investigator Manuel Gomez. I uh, uh, own the company Black Ops Private Investigators. Um, I am one of the most feared investigators in the East Coast uh, because I take on cases of innocent people. I fight the judicial system, the judges and the prosecutors and the corrupt cops. Um, I fight corruption from the highest level, from the corrupt judges, from the corrupt prosecutors. And I've been doing this now for the past nine years. I've won over 100 cases proving people innocent, and I haven't lost a case yet. 
Private investigator Manuel Gomez has been involved in some high-profile cases here in New York City, including the case of Pedro Hernandez, who we mentioned in Part 1, as being trapped in the grip of the criminal justice system. Manuel helped Hernandez go free. He has some strong opinions about the criminal justice system, and he's written and co-written several bills to bring oversight to judges, prosecutors, cops, firefighters, and correctional officers by ending their financial immunity, allowing individuals to sue them for abuse and corruption, as well as creating a Department of Civilian Justice to oversee accountability and address corruption. So when he told me his case, the first thing I told him was, I would only take his case on if he's innocent. And I told him, I said, look, if you're not innocent, hang up the phone. Don't waste your, your family's time or their money. And uh, he said, no, Mr. Gomez, I'm innocent. So as I started to look into his case, I found out the one unequivocal evidence that proved to me that Prakash is innocent. And he right now has been in jail, uh, waiting trial, now having a trial for the past six years. So he went in there as a 15-year-old boy, and now he spent his youth in jail waiting for trial for judicial system to give him a hearing. Um, I found out that the prosecutor's office offered him a plea deal and that he would get only six years and walk out. So the time that he's already served, he could take a deal right now, right now, and walk out of jail and be home a free man. This Pakash Terminus refused to take that deal. He refused to walk out of jail a guilty man because he's innocent. Now listen to that. First of all, the, the murder the murder charge is 25 to life. So you get convicted, you're getting 25 years minimum to life for murder. They said, we'll let you go. And they offered him that deal and he turned it down. And that's because they did that because they know he is innocent but they don't want him to come back and sue the Queen's prosecutor's office. So by them doing that to him, they let him go, but then now he can't sue them for the wrongful arrest and the wrongful incarceration. This is why I took on the case, because only an innocent man would turn on a deal like that. Only an innocent man. Manuel had another reason for taking Prakash's case. And then I asked him, okay, well, who would stop all your evidence coming in to court that proved you innocent? And I said, you know, what was the prosecutor's name? And then he said to me, uh, and I said, what was the judge's name? And he said, Judge Kenneth Holder. When he said Judge Kenneth Holder, my mouth hit the floor. He has other clients who have issues with Judge Holder. Clients like Ajaya Neal, who spent more than four years locked up awaiting trial in Queens on murder charges. And Joel Farrell, who was given a $15 million bail by Judge Holder. But I had this mother come to me crying. Like says he would not let Prakash's evidence come in. So, you know, like I said, I, I try to help her and I says, okay, I know what to do. Because I've written complaints against this judge for falsifying evidence. I, I've won cases against this judge. I mean, this judge, like I said, should not be sitting on the bench. He is a monster, a moral monster, but he's a friend. He's an absolute friend to the Queen's prosecutor. I asked Manuel if there's any money being made here. 
Absolutely. Um, and, I, and you just nailed the, the money, the nail right on the head. Um, this is a money-making business. It is a, a trillion-dollar money-making business statewide. For example, if you get arrested and there's court fees you got to pay, and there's uh, fines, uh, $100, $195, plus the court fees to get a copy of the disposition, this is making hundreds of millions of dollars per city. Let me say that again. Per city within the state of New York. Okay? This is a money-making business. This is why plea deals benefits the courts. You know why? Because the people got to pay all those fines and surcharges, and we're making money off people's injustice. We have cops right now doing ticket quarters. They say they don't have them. It's a lie. If you ask any cop out there, do you have a performance? They call it performance objectives, okay? What's a performance objective? They evaluate them on how many summonses they write. And then these people go to court and then wind up paying surcharges. This is the money that's being generated. We're generating money on destroying the very fabric of the lives of our youth and of our people. I've looked at some of the reporting done on how much money New York State and New York City generates in court fees and fines. There isn't a full accounting out there that breaks it all down. But according to a report published by the Unified Court System of New York State, more than $643 million was collected in fines and fees by courts in the state in 2019. Some of that came from attorney registration fees and criminal record checks. But leaving those aside, it appears that nearly $400 million was generated primarily from fines and penalties paid by defendants. Prakash's case raises a few issues of the criminal justice system here in New York State. Holding juvenile defendants on Rikers Island instead of a juvenile detention facility was normal practice until the Raise the Age law stopped it altogether. But that was passed four years after Prakash was arrested, so he never got to benefit from the law. Another issue brought up by Prakash's case is New York's felony murder statute. In an article published by the news outlet The City, journalist Reuven Blau wrote that New York State's felony murder statute allows people to be charged even if they didn't kill anyone, as long as the death occurred while they are committing another serious crime. Blau contrasts New York to countries like Canada and the United Kingdom, who have stopped this practice. Apparently, other states such as Hawaii and Kentucky have also struck this practice from their felony murder statutes. We could spend several episodes dedicated to the various issues of the criminal justice system. And trust me, whole shows, whole series are dedicated to these issues. But I think it's important to hear from Prakash himself, what he believes should be addressed. Well, first and foremost, um, as a... From speaking from a defendant's standpoint, someone that is accused of a crime, there is no explanation as to why I awaited pretrial detention for nearly four years. I should not have to sit up in jail four years for a trial. That violates my due process. It violates all types of all types of rights that I have according to the US Constitution and New York State Constitution. But, you know, these people don't care. They're hypocrites. They're hypocrites, man. But um, the, the number one thing I would, I, I would bring up to them is um, I would like for them to, to, to reform and change the amount of time it takes 
for them to prosecute people. Because, you know, throughout that four years, you know, you got to understand, people move, memories fade, um, all types of stuff. So I'm, I suffer an enormous amount of prejudice and also bias towards me. So, you know, at the end of the day, me waiting four years for a trial, that's, that right there is a violation of my right to a fair trial. That's, that's the first and foremost thing I would want to see changed. Well, for juveniles, man, I, I mean, I, I don't see why, you know, I mean, I understand why, but it's like someone charged with murder in the second degree. I mean, according to the law and the sentencing um, guidelines for a juvenile offender, all right, for the charge that I'm charged with, which is felony murder, my minimum is five to life and my maximum is nine to life. I, I, I really don't see why you know, there, there needs to be life on the end of that sentence for you to see any type of rehabilitation or growth or, or development in someone that was 14, 13, 14, 15 years old. So you're taking people's decades away from people, from their lives, keeping them behind bars somewhere and um, expect them to not be mentally handicapped or, 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 or captive from society you understand what I'm saying you have someone just behind behind walls behind barbed wires for years on top of years I mean that's 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 inhumane to me especially being a, a juvenile that's inhumane and cruel to me because that right there violates a constitutional right you know against cruel and unusual punishment but you know who am I to say any of this because you know they, those that are in power think they're better than, they're, they're better than everyone and um, nobody, nobody, no one can tell them nothing we took Prakash's story up because he's right about these things nobody should have to wait six years behind bars for a trial to determine one's innocence Juvenile defendants should get more support and more lenient penalties. Stacking charges and threatening life sentences shouldn't be used to intimidate people into plea deals, which, as Jorgen told us last time, is how 98% of felony conviction charges are secured in New York State. More so than anything, this entire criminal justice system needs to be reformed, if not abolished and rebuilt with a complete shift in priorities. We shouldn't have a criminal justice system where reputations are built around the number of successful prosecutions an assistant district attorney has, nor by the tough-on-crime photo ops that usually gives cover to racist law and order rhetoric by politicians. Humans aren't meant to spend their entire lives in a cage or under some oppressive order. The criminal justice system has to be driven by justice and reconciliation. It has to do what it can to address the root issues of crime rather than building a whole judicial political economy out of a condition it creates and perpetuates. At one point during my interview with him, I had asked him if he would accept a plea deal. It was only later, after speaking with Jacob and then with Manuel Gomez, that I realized he had already been offered such a plea deal. If the DA offered you a plea deal, for time served, would you take it? No, definitely would not take it. 
How come? How come you wouldn't take it? Because that's me accepting, accepting guilt for a crime I did not commit. So it's like, you know, as a man, I can't do that. As a man, I can't, you know what I mean? I can't, I can't, I can't be a victim to the system and another statistic to the system. You know, all they really care about is, is, is their conviction rate and their reputation. That's all they care about. They don't care about nothing else. They don't care about whether a person is innocent or, or not. None of that means nothing to them. Thank you for using Securus. Goodbye. You're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio. My name is Julian. That was the end of our segment on Prakash's story. We're going to take a short musical break, but when we come back, we'll be speaking with Jacob, who you heard from our segment. So stick around. for that human being. We found a way to, to develop a moral principles and values and disciplines that made us better human beings. That was Freedom by Future Utopia. You're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio right here on WBAI 99.5 FM. Also streaming on WBAI.org. So like I said, we're going to go into the interview and I want to welcome Jacob Cohen onto our show. Hello, hello. Hey, Jacob. I'm really glad you could be on. Uh, The segment on Prakash was so long that we don't have that much time, but I'd like to get into as many questions as I can. So... Let's just get into it, shall we? Okay, okay. So, uh, you know, in the segment, we spoke about how you met Prakash while working at Rikers Island. Can you tell us how how did you start working there and what was it like? I started as a volunteer. I had the idea to go play music for the the young, uh, well, at first, just any inmates that were, you know, the people that were incarcerated there. So I ended up getting in touch with a nonprofit that was doing some work trying to connect the kids uh, to resources when they get released. So I became part of their outreach team and they put, placed me into the units and I went in there and just started playing playing the cello. Before that, I had been a street performer for like five years, full time, playing in the subway and uh, I don't know, I was ready for a change. So I, I don't know, I, I got real into that project and um once I got in there, I started connecting with the kids and the guards and the officers, and everybody liked uh, what I was doing. So they invited me, and uh, I ended up working there full-time for, like, four years almost. Well, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of supervision by correctional staff. Um, how are you expected to relate to people you meet who are serving time there? Uh, yeah, the, you know, you're supposed to kind of stick to your um, your program. But my program was a music and art program. So it was kind of, you know, 
and I had a lot of engagement. I would, I, I would do music and I would draw with the kids. I, and I started doing a lot of portraits uh, that I would draw of them and give to them. And uh, that became really popular. So uh, I would have everybody on the unit, you know, gathered around for, for group uh, sketches, you know, and stuff like that. Or we'd be having jam sessions and the officers would join in. And it was just a good vibe, you know. So the officers, in, you know, engaged with the program too. And we all were just getting along having a good time while I was there, you know, and as soon as I left, it went back to like, you know, hell on earth. Right. Right. So can you talk to us about how you helping Prakash cost you your job? Yeah. Um, I don't know. You know, I started advocating for him. The first thing that we did was make a video Kickstarter one minute, uh, video advocating, you know, it was made up of phone calls kind of like this segment was, and, uh, I was basically accusing the system of being, you know, um, completely biased against him and unfair, unjust, and that it was stacked against him, you know, and uh, we said a lot in a, a short amount of time, and I guess they didn't like what we had to say. So I don't know, after whoever was higher up heard heard it, they immediately like kicked me out, you know, uh, no questions asked. I was removed like that minute that they found it, <laughs> escorted off the island, you know, they had some crazy meeting where they were, you know, real and intimidating. And um, yeah, I was like fired immediately. It, was, it happened real quick. Right. It sounds like it happened pretty quick. Or did you have much of a decision or could you appeal any of that while it was happening? Uh, no, it was no appeal process. I don't know. You know, it just kind of is what it is. I was happy to just get away from that place. You know, I was ready to leave after four years. So it was kind of hard, but it was, you know, it was, it was ready to get out of there. Definitely. So from working with youth at Rikers, if there was one thing you would like the general public to understand about the current criminal justice system, what, what do you think that should be? Um, uh, it's very unjust. I saw people of color in there. They're all poor. Um, they don't have proper representation. It's just completely stacked. They're, these kids are getting railroaded. I was mostly working with young, with young under 21, and I, you know, I was just watching them all get railroaded, getting years, years, years stacked up. And it's just not fair, man. It's not fair. It's not right. Um, and something needs to be done about it, you know. So that's why the Black Lives Matter movement is kind of uh, exciting to watch. But, you know, the, the the backlash is real discouraging. So it's like, I don't know, it's all a mess. But these kids are really in there suffering every day right now, you know. Definitely. And, and the sort of crazy political moment that we're in right now with the elections also dampens those social movements. And you don't get to hear from them as much. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say it's sad. A lot of these kids were, um, you know, victims long before they were considered criminals. Uh, a lot of them had crazy experiences growing up. So it's just not right. You know, that, and most of them grew up in correctional facilities. A lot of them, you know, from, from uh, foster care to juvenile facilities, to Rikers Island, to prison. You know, I once heard someone say that, you know, instead of saying low income communities, we should say historically looted communities. Yeah. And I think I, I like that term because I think it flips on its head the current sort of sentiment around looting and and what that means. Now, um, is there any advice that you would be able to give someone um, who has like a loved one in jail or interested in supporting someone on the inside? Like, yeah, I was going to say, you know, small gestures go a long way for the people that are that are inside, you know, even a phone call or taking, you know, five, 10 minutes out of your day just to say hello is uh, means a lot. But um it's also good to, through my experience, it's good to pace yourself and kind of like, you know, take the space that you need to sort of, um, 
you know, keep the keep the support system going, you know, because it, it, it takes its toll. And it's a long road, you know, from, you know, Prakash has been locked up for six years fighting his case. It's like it takes its toll, you know, on everybody involved. And uh, yeah, stay in touch. Uh, um, I think those. I think that's it. You know, just do the best you can. Yeah, you know, we can do a lot. Everybody said Bakash's case was hopeless. Nothing. Nobody could help him. Nothing could be done. And I was like, well, Are you crazy? You know, we could at least try. We could. You know, one thing we could do is try. You know, and as, it took like not even a month, and we got Ron Kuby on the case. You know, one of the best civil rights lawyers in the, in the city. Everybody said Bakash's case was hopeless, and I got a phone call a month later after starting to just talk about how I wanted to help him. And we got a, a, you know, a pro bono lawyer that was great, man. He did an excellent job, you know. So um, <clears throat> there's a lot you can do and there's a lot that you can't do. It's out of your control. So you got to kind of like be really accepting of like how out of control it is. Definitely. The limitations of being incarcerated is is quite daunting, you know. Yeah, that's a fact. So, you know, in, in the segment and in our conversations with Prakash, we asked him what he thought should be done to change the current criminal justice system. What are what are your thoughts on the topic? Uh, I think should end cash bail. Um, we should stop torturing people. Stop keeping people in cages. Um, you know, you could give them beds that are that are, are thicker than uh, like a one inch mat. You know, <laughs> give them beds that are that are bigger than six feet. I don't know. You know, it's just like basic stuff for like what you could do for them physically. That would go a long way. You know, end cash bail so people could fight their cases from the outside. You know, um, give them lawyer. You know, get get them some system of support where they could get, you know, lawyers to fight their cases, to actually support them. I don't know. There's a lot of stuff you could do. End felony, end felony murder. You know, for minors at the least. Um, stop stop doing uh, interrogations of minors without lawyers present. You know, eliminate life sentences for minors. There's a lot of stuff that needs to happen. It's just it's really sad what's going on. Definitely. So, you know, I want to see if we have some time to take one or two calls. Um, I want to ask you one more question, and then we're going to take a break and, and open up our phone line so that people can give us a call. Uh, Jacob, how can people help support, you know, Prakash in this moment? Um, he, has a, he has a court date on Monday. If anybody wants to come out of the Queen's Courthouse, he can come show support in, in person, in the flesh, you know. Um, but he also has a GoFundMe up where he's raising money to try to... Um, hire uh the investigator that he needs uh for his case and hire the uh the person that he the uh, expert witness in his trial that he needs to hire um and he also has a petition up on uh on whatever it's called change change.org yeah um or you could you know sign up to have a visit with him in person through the the department of corrections website um yeah Definitely. So I think um, what Prakash told me is that his court date is actually at 2 p.m. Um, by Queens Criminal Courthouse. So uh, if people can go, they, you know, they should. Yeah, I'll be there. Support. Yeah, we're going to show up. We're going to go. So if you want to come through, show some support, come through. Great, great. So let's take a musical break right now. And when we come back, we'll be answering, you know, a call or two if we can. So give us a call at 212-209-2877. Again, that's 212-209-2877. We'll be right back. Oh, we need is hope. And for that we have each other. And for that we have each other.
That was Rise Up by Andre Day. So again, if you are able to give us a call, we're trying to take some callers. We're opening our lines. You can give us a call at 212-209-2877. I wonder if we actually have any callers uh, as of yet. If not, um, maybe we could take another question um, or ask. Do you have three callers? Oh, wow. We have three callers. Okay. So can you uh, put the first caller through, Catherine? Yeah. Um, they're standing by, right? You can talk to them now. Thank you, Catherine. Caller, welcome on to Working Class Heroes Radio. Can I get your name and tell us what you'd like to say? Hi, Julian. This is Jorgen calling. I was on the show last week. Um, just wanted to give a shout out to Prakash. You know, again, just reiterating kind of what I said last week that you know, just wishing uh, freedom for Prakash in the most complete sense of that word. Um, so, yeah, he asked me to call in and give a shout-out. So, yeah. Jorgen, thanks Th- Thanks again. for doing the show again. <clears throat> oh, of course. Thanks Thanks for giving us a call. Really appreciate the, the love and support for Prakash. Can you put through our next caller, Catherine, please? Yeah. yeah. Am I up now? Yes. Caller, welcome to Working hey. Class Series Radio. Yeah, good afternoon, good evening, good show, Julian, Victor Pate, how you doing? <laughs> hey, hey, Victor, how's it going? Okay, great, great. So I guess my question is this here, um, and, and just listening to the story is really disheartening, and, and it's really uh, ang- angering that with all of this information that has been um, revealed with regards to his case, you know, it just seems like it is just sad and it's just like he, he's been railroaded. I'm no lawyer. He's been railroaded. But I guess for me, my question is the fact that he uh, won a reversal and now he's set to have a new trial in front of the same judge that he was at trial with before. I think it would fall into the realm for me a double jeopardy because you already have a judge that's prejudiced. Number one, you already had a judge that in many rulings in his previous trials ruled against him. So why would his attorney allow his case to proceed in front of the same judge? It's a it's a fantastic question. It's mind boggling that they're they're you know. I hope somebody can answer that for me. Somebody with a legal you know legal mind. I, I don't understand how you would proceed or even try to proceed with a, a reversal, a case in front of the same judge that he was sentenced on and, and ruled in many instances based upon what I hear against him, I think this is another setup, and it should not be allowed. I think it's criminal if it does proceed. So thank you for listening, and thank you for the work that you're doing, and I'm hoping that this brother can get some justice as somebody that's willing to do something challenges this miserable system to help that brother get out. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Solidarity, Victor. Much appreciated. So I think we should try to patch in our last caller. 
Caller, you're on Working Class Heroes Radio. Yeah. How, how you doing there? Hey, how's it going? Yeah. It's, What's um, your name, Caller? Uh, Steve. Steve from um, up in the Bronx. Uh, it's ironic that this subject came up because I was just talking to a person of the day about uh, in the courtrooms, right? The prosecutor pretty much, you know, rules the roost. However, this holder, you know, he he's he's he seems to be exception because usually the prosecutor is running the show in that courtroom, and they, they, they pretty much the judge is sitting there like he's some umpire on, in the World Series. You know, for the most part, you know, that's how they suppress information. And then you find out later on from the jurors, you know, um, what the, what the, uh, the uh, prosecutor didn't, didn't even allow. So how you don't expose something to me, how, I'm, how, how am I going to defend myself? I mean, as a jurors, how am I going to vote on something that you didn't even allow the jurors to know about? That's called a suppression. And they do Absolutely. that regularly. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But I was impressed with this individual called Manuel Gomez mm-hmm. from Black Ops. Definitely. I did a little background on them, you know, as we, we as I was waiting. And they were in Washington. I thought he yeah. was in New York somewhere. Huh? No, no, he is based in, in New York, actually. Um Folks should definitely reach out to, to Manuel Gomez and Black Ops if, if, they, if they're looking for help. He's a tenacious fighter. Um, Steve, I appreciate your call. Uh, and I think we're kind of running out of time. Uh, Jacob, do you have any last comments or thoughts you want to respond to any of that stuff? Um, no, nah, everybody was spot on. You know, it is completely unjust to have the same judge again. The judge was biased against him in the first case. You know, he wanted on a technicality this appeal. And uh, the judge is going to, you know, be biased, continue to be biased in the case. So they're completely spot on what they said. And I just want to shout out Bakash, man. Yeah, keep your head up, man. Same. Thank you, Jacob, again. Thank you, Khadija. Thank you, WBAI and Catherine. Um, New York will be back next week at 6 p.m. right here on WBAI 99.5 FM. And as always, in solidarity.
say every man needs protection They say every man must fall So I swear I see my reflection to blame. 